The Russian Revolution. Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Churchill. In the early 19th century, the Russian Empire was the third largest in the world, covering one-sixth of the world's surface. Its Asian part made it the largest country in Asia, and its European portion made it the largest country in Europe. Russia was 26 times larger than France, 47 times larger than Germany, and 70 times larger than England. Its tremendous size was not an advantage. Its population was 125.6 million people, the third largest population in the world at the time. The majority of the population lived in European Russia. There were more than 100 different ethnic groups and only 45% of the population were ethnic Russians. Russia differed from fundamentally from Western Europe. Large distances, adverse climate, and poor communications, as well as extensive ethnic, religious, and cultural diversity, kept Russia a backward country. Russians were divided into socialist states. 6% were nobles, 1% were clergy, 9% were merchants, and the military was 6%. The empire was predominantly a rural agricultural society with low productivity spread over vast spaces. 80% of the people were peasants working on large estates controlled by the landowning aristocracy. The peasants had been serfs until freed in 1861. They still lived in tens of thousands of small villages under a highly patriarchal system. Every year, more than 50 to 75% of the men and 33% of the women left their villages, wandering throughout Russia, looking for work. Hundreds of thousands moved to cities, taking factory jobs, but all retained their village connections. 69% of the population were Russian Orthodox Christians. Education standards were very low, with a literacy rate of 1 to 12% among male peasants, 20 to 25% for urban men, and very, very low for women. In Western Europe, urban men had a 50% literacy rate at this time. The Orthodox Church was suspicious of education, believing there was no need for peasants to be literate. The government focused on universities, and generally ignored elementary and secondary education. The economy slowly industrialized with the help of foreign investments in railways and factories. The Minister of Finance, Sir J. Witte, felt sacrifices were necessary to make Russia industrially strong. To achieve this, he willingly exploited the peasants, believing improved industrialization would ultimately raise their living standards. The new Tsar, Nicholas II, assumed the throne in 1894. He was both hopelessly unprepared and out of step with his times. He was also an extremely weak man. However, he was strong in one regard. He wanted to marry Alex of Hesse. Nicholas and Alex first met in 1884. He was 16 and she was 12. In 1889, Alex returned to Russia on a visit and the two young people fell in love. Nicholas's parents did not want him marrying Alex, 
but Nicholas refused to budge. While in good health, Alexander III ignored his son's demands, but in 1894, as his health worsened, he relented. Alex also had her doubts about the marriage. She did not want to become a member of the Russian Orthodox Church, but because she loved Nicholas, she agreed and became a passionate convert. Alexander III died in November of 1894, and Nicholas became Russia's new emperor. Nicholas, staggering under the weight of his new office, had no intention of allowing the one person who gave him confidence to leave his side. He refused to wait, and they married seven days after the funeral. Many people in Russia took the arrival of their new empress as a bad omen. He has come, she has come to us behind a coffin. She brings misfortune with her. A year later, Alexandra gave birth to a daughter, Olga, who could not inherit the throne. Once Tsar, Nicholas continued his father's policies, including nationalism, slashing minority nationalities' rights, and restricting non-Orthodox religious groups. It was an absolute monarchy founded on orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. He believed God chose him to be Tsar, and therefore his decisions were God's and unquestionable. In the 1897 census, when asked for his occupation, Nicholas wrote, owner of Russia. Alexandra was also a believer in the divine right of kings, which made it unnecessary to win the people's approval or love. She supported his stubbornness with forceful advice. Be more autocratic than Peter the Great and sterner than Ivan the Terrible. Alexandra was heartily disliked. She was believed to be cold and curt, but was just terribly shy and nervous. The Russians were not happy that she disliked Russian culture and spoke Russian with a heavy accent. The people were also annoyed by her failure to produce a son, and this increased every time she gave birth to yet another daughter. As Western European economic growth accelerated with the Industrial Revolution, Russia fell further behind, creating new weaknesses for an empire wanting to be a great power. The Russian army built two major railway lines, the Trans-Caucasus Railway and the Trans-Caspian Railway. Both lines served the commercial and strategic needs of the empire and facilitated migration. By 1902, the Trans-Siberian Railway's completion helped Russian trade in the Far East. This forced industrialization propelled the country into an alien and hated lifestyle. It created a new class of discontented workers and greater agricultural impoverishment. It also promoted mobility, literacy, and contact with Western Europe, which resulted in imported political agitation among the professional classes, intelligentsia, workers, peasants, and subject nationalities. Russia hid its government's inefficiency, its people's isolation, and economic and social backwardness from the world. In order to repress revolts, censorship intensified, including constant surveillance of schools and universities. Textbooks were strictly monitored. Police spies were everywhere, and anyone suspected of being a revolutionary was exiled to Siberia. Most of the Russian leadership embraced conservatism as their ideology. 
Occasionally, the government passed some reforms. Modernization based on technology to serve the established system substituted for progress. The new idea was Russia governed by Genghis Khan with the telegraph. A Russian and Japanese war was inevitable. Determined to give Russia colonies, Nicholas encouraged Russian expansion in the Far East, especially in Manchuria and Korea. The Japanese, also interested in controlling these territories, attempted to work out a compromise. They promised Nicholas control of Manchuria if he would allow them Korea. He was determined to have the Manchurian warm water port of Port Arthur as well as the rich forest and lucrative mines in Korea. A war might also arouse Russian patriotism and encourage them to rally behind their czar. More importantly, he falsely believed, as did many European powers, that Japan would never challenge the Russian Empire with its far larger and supposedly superior army and navy. Russia's military consisted of an imperial Russian army and navy. After Russia's appalling defeat during the Crimean War, the government attempted to reform and modernize. Instead, the military fell further behind the German, French, and British military in technology, training, and organization. One minister commented, In a year of war, the regular army had vanished. It was replaced by an army of ignoramus. Japan was ready to attack, and it did. In February 1904, three hours before the formal declaration of war reached the Russian government, the Japanese Navy attacked Port Arthur and devastated the Russian Navy. Nicholas was astounded. He had been reassured by his ministers that Japan would not fight. As the war continued, Russia suffered huge losses including most of its Pacific and Baltic fleets. The Tsar sent his troops icons to boost their morale. One general joked, the Japanese are beating us with machine guns, but never mind, we'll beat them with icons. The Japanese victory triggered Russia's loss of status in the world's eyes. Russian popular support for the war quickly eroded as Japan defeated Russia's forces again and again. The humiliated Russians blamed the Tsar. In 1904, the Tsar welcomed his long-awaited heir, and the country went crazy over the birth of a royal prince. Since the country was at war, all active military men and Russian army and navy officers were named honorary godfathers. Unfortunately, Alexei suffered from hemophilia and did not have the protein which helped blood clot. His hemophilia was so severe that the slightest bump, bruise, cut, or nosebleed could potentially kill him. Nicholas and Alexandra had a choice to make. They could either reveal to Russia that the heir would probably not see adulthood, or they could keep his illness a secret. Hoping to limit further social and political instability and uncertainty, they chose to keep it a secret. Alexandra felt guilty for having given her son his hemophilia, and she became obsessed and protective. His hemophilia brought mother and son even closer together, and she further isolated herself from the Russian court to spend almost all her time with him. Nicholas and Alexei's sisters also spoiled him whenever he was well. 
Alexandra turned first to Russian doctors to treat Alexei, but their treatments failed. Desperate, she turned to God, becoming absorbed in all the Orthodox rituals and saints, and spent hours every day praying in her private chapel. When that also failed, she turned to mystics and so-called holy men who claimed to be able to heal him during his nearly fatal attacks. Between 1895-1897, the government shortened the workday to 11 and a half hours, but it also ordered the capture and punishment of all strike leaders. The revolutionary movement was spreading widely, but Nicholas and his government lacked the policy to deal effectively with the situation. By the Russo-Japanese War's end, Russian peasants and lower-class workers lived in poverty. They worked long hours under dangerous working conditions for little food. The resulting Russian defeat led to numerous protests, riots, and strikes across the country. Imperial troops were sent out 2,000 times to suppress violence. Nicholas remained quiet and unresponsive, spending most of his time hunting. Witty advised Nicholas that the country was on the verge of a cataclysmic revolution. In 1905, thousands, led by a priest, Grigory Gapon, organized a march to the Winter Palace. The majority of the protesters still believed in orthodoxy, the autocracy, and didn't care about politics. They only wanted fair treatment and better working conditions. They believed the government was indifferent, but that the Tsar was on their side. They decided to petition Nicholas, hoping he would act. In their eyes, the Tsar was their representative, who would help them if he became aware of their situation. God had appointed him to protect and help them. The petition was written in subservient terms and ended with a reminder of his obligation to them. Troops had been deployed around the Winter Palace and the city's key points. Nicholas, however, lived 15 miles outside the city. He assumed the police would publicize his absence and the workers would abandon their plans. On Sunday morning, January 22nd, striking workers and their families began to gather at six points in the industrial outskirts of St. Petersburg. Dressed in their Sunday best, holding religious icons, and singing hymns and patriotic songs, especially God Save the Tsar, a crowd of more than 3,000 marched to the Winter Palace, not knowing he wasn't there. Instead, there were substantial military forces stationed in and around the palace. They were Imperial Guard units, plus infantry regiments brought in by rail. They numbered about 10,000 and were ordered to halt the marchers before they reached the palace. There was no single encounter at the Winter Palace, but a series of separate incidents. Military officers were inconsistent. Some told marchers they could proceed in smaller groups. Others told them to disperse, and the rest ordered their troops to fire into the marchers without warning. As crowds continued marching, Cossacks and regular cavalry charged, using their swords and trampling people. About 2,300 soldiers went to where family groups were taking their usual Sunday afternoon walks. And after a single shouted warning, a bugle sounded and four volleys were fired into the panicked crowd, 
many of whom were not March participants. The total number killed or wounded is still unknown. Although Nicholas was not at the Winter Palace and did not give the order for troops to fire, he was widely blamed for the massacre. Bloody Sunday's most significant effect was the drastic change in Russian peasants and workers. They now saw their little father not as the people's champion, but as part of the hated bureaucracy. Gapon said, Comrade workers, tear up all portraits of the blood-sucking czar and say to him, Be thou damned with all thine august reptilian progeny. Fortunately for the czar, his soldiers stayed loyal and the autocracy survived. But many revolts broke out throughout Europe, throughout Russia. Witty told Nicholas the choice was either to put himself at the head of the popular movement for freedom by making concessions to it, or institute a military dictatorship and suppress, by naked force, the whole of the opposition. Nicholas was forced to create an elected legislature called the Duma. He had inherited a Russian empire controlled by a czar as an absolute monarch. After the 1905 revolution, it was now a constitutional monarchy under an autocratic czar. Nicholas agreed to establish this elected parliament, the Imperial Duma, which now had the sole right to create all of Russia's laws. Nicholas, however, kept many of his royal privileges, including the right to veto all the Duma's legislation. Nicholas said, curse the Duma. It's all Witty's fault. The Duma was a freely elected National Assembly. Duma representatives were not directly elected, but chosen in four stages. Property requirements excluded much of the intelligentsia and all of the working classes. The majority of Duma members were overwhelmingly wealthy and from the landed classes. The Tsar retained the right to disband the Duma, and he exercised this more than once. His ministers were responsible solely to him and not the Duma, which could question but not remove them. Voting in the Duma was by secret ballot, and a simple majority carried the day. Since the majority consisted of conservative elements, there was not much democracy. Nicholas had a clear picture of what he expected from them. I created the Duma not to be directed by it, but advised. Alexei continued to suffer from his illness. One day in 1907, Alexei began hemorrhaging, and the doctors, after doing everything they could, told the Tsar and his wife that the boy was going to die. Alexandra learned of a holy man, Rasputin, and his miraculous powers. She invited him to the palace. Once he entered the sick room, he took over. He dismissed the doctors and even Alexandra. He then remained alone with the boy. By morning, Alexei had made an amazing recovery. Rasputin was born in a small Siberian village and, like many peasants, was not educated and remained illiterate. Although known as the Mad Monk, he never took all holy orders and described himself as a traditional Russian holy man who possessed God-given powers, a starets. As a young man, he traveled all over Russia, Europe, and the Middle East. He apparently learned many tricks, which allowed him to pose as a faith healer. Russia was full of men and women exactly like him, who claimed special powers and usually lived off the superstitious peasants. 
He built a strong reputation among church officials in Kazan and then left with their recommendations and financial support for St. Petersburg. When he arrived in St. Petersburg, he soon made friends among society's upper class. He used these upper class connections to attract the Tsarina's attention. Unfortunately, healing was not his only gift. Rasputin had a way with women, seducing many noble women and society beauties. He soon had a large group of mainly female followers. At dinner parties, he would lick his fingers and then extend his hand out to prominent noble women so they could kiss his fingertips. He made a habit of going a long time without washing himself and once bragged he had not changed his underwear for over six months. Food would often rot in his beard. Rather than rejecting sin, Rasputin believed that only if you indulged in sex and alcohol and sinned could you repent and then be redeemed. But almost everyone said that his eyes were mesmerizing, burning, piercing, compelling, and illuminated with a strange phosphorescent light. While he behaved himself around the royal family, rumors were soon circulating among the Russians as to what he was doing at the palace. Since Alexei's hemophilia was a secret, no one knew why the Tsar would permit such a man in his palace. The rumors got worse, and Nicholas was forced to exile him to Siberia. Alexei remained fairly healthy until 1912. Then one day he began hemorrhaging and was soon in severe pain and delirious with fever. The doctors could do nothing and told his parents he would die within hours. Alexandra demanded Nicholas bring Rasputin back. However, Siberia was very far away. A telegram was sent, Rasputin was found, and he telegraphed back. God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. Upon receiving the telegram, Alexei began recovering. When Rasputin returned, he was never to leave the royal family's side again. With the outbreak of World War I in 1914, the Russians responded with a show of patriotic fervor. They Russianized St. Petersburg to Petrograd. The Duma voted to support the Tsar and his government. Five Bolshevik deputies voted against the war. They were arrested, had their property confiscated, were charged with subversion, and exiled to Siberia. But World War I proved an unbearable burden on Imperial Russia's dangerously weak government and economy. Germany had 10 times as much railway track. Russian soldiers traveled an average of 800 miles to reach the front. German soldiers, less than 200 miles. The Russians were also seriously short of artillery pieces, shells, motorized transports, rifles, and even boots. Nevertheless, an immediate attack was ordered against Germany. In the Battle of Tannenberg, the entire Second Army was annihilated. The loyal officers lost were the very ones needed to protect the dynasty. The combination of poor planning and poor preparation destroyed the Russian morale and set the stage for civil collapse. Mass shortages and hunger became the daily situation for tens of millions of Russians. 15 million men were diverted from agricultural production to fight in the war, and the transportation infrastructure, primarily railroads, 
was diverted towards war use, exacerbating food shortages in the cities. The government, in order to finance the war, printed millions of ruble notes, and by 1917, inflation made prices increase to four times what they were in 1914. Farmers hoarded their grain, and the cities went hungry. Rising prices also led to demands by factory workers for wage increases. By February 1916, revolutionaries backed by German funds were criticizing the government, and there were widespread sykes. Even the aristocracy was against the government. As early as 1916, there was talk of forcing the Tsar to abdicate. All the Russians complained about the Empress's German birth and her devotion to Rasputin. The British ambassador's daughter said Alexandra's assassination was seen as the only way of saving the empire and openly spoken of in aristocratic drawing rooms. Rasputin was an outspoken critic of the war. He warned the royal couple that the war would be the end of the Romanovs. They ignored him. At the height of the food shortage, Rasputin begged city officials and the royal couple to distribute the plentiful supply of grain stored in the royal silos. Again, they refused to listen, and the grain rotted. Rasputin said of Nicholas, The Tsar can change his mind from one minute to the next. He's a sad man. He lacks guts. However, Rasputin was not above taking bribes to keep men out of the army. He also had a disastrous vision in which he claimed the Russian army would succeed only if Nicholas personally took command of the army. This time, the royal couple listened and agreed.